to FO Podcasts. This is Atul Singh. With me is Nasir Khilji again. He retired as a senior economist in the US Treasury. He has a wealth of experience and knowledge. And since he originally comes from Pakistan, uh, we are going to discuss the Pakistani economy today. So, Nasir, Pakistan has been in the news. Uh, It has uh, been facing a crisis. Uh, We keep hearing that the economy is in free fall. So paint us a picture. What is going on with the Pakistani economy? Okay, thank you, Atul. Uh, It's uh, good to be back. it's it's a you know tall order um, what's happening to the Pakistani economy because one of the thing any analyst uh, that needs to talk about the Pakistani economy would be to take a deep dive, which inexorably means that one has to go into the historical background and stuff. But I'm going to dispense with that for the moment and just focus on exactly what's happening presently. Mm-hmm. Over the last year, Pakistan has experienced v- historically high inflation rates uh, for a number of reasons. One is worldwide. If I may interject, what is historically high? Is it 100%? Is it 170%? Okay, before last year, or even let's say, let's go back pre-COVID days, prior to COVID, on the average, the Pakistani economy had its ups and downs, but never experienced double-digit inflation. It generally had inflation less than 6 7% year in, year out, for a number of reasons. One of them was that Pakistan has always had budget deficits, which has meant that the state bank, which is the central bank of Pakistan, has had to monetize the debt because the private sector doesn't buy up all government debt. And since Pakistan has always had a public deficits that we can talk some more about later, yes. uh, the central bank has had to monetize it, which has meant that the rupee has uh, the uh, purchasing power of the rupee, which is the currency in Pakistan, has tended to depreciate on the average by 5 to 6% a year, starting in the 50s. Uh, after COVID, of course, like all the other economies, you know, Pakistan had its share of high oil prices. Uh, energy prices went up because Pakistan is mainly an oil an uh, oil importer, although it does have some natural gas, uh, but mainly all oil is imported. So clearly, when the oil prices went up. After COVID, uh, Pakistan had to pay a higher bill, and that meant an oil is an input into all the other stuff. So, you know, that was one reason that inflation went up. So historically high inflation, thanks to the Russia-Ukraine war and other factors. And what else is going on? And, uh, and Pakistan has historically, again, by historical standards, has had a substantial devaluation of the Pakistani currency. Mm -hmm. Again, because, again, of a balance of payment deficit and because of the high cost of all the other stuff that's being imported and high public deficits and lack of confidence in the rupee, uh, the rupee has depreciated about 30%. So a year ago, we were talking about 180 rupees to a dollar. Now it's 300. So... 
you can do a rule of thumb that for every 1%, uh, you know, uh, decrease in the rupee, uh, you know, the, the inflation rate probably goes up by 1%. So, so there you have, because everything, all imported items go up in rupee terms. So that's a one to one kind of thing. So if we've had a 30% depreciation, you would expect a 30% rise in prices over the last year. That's by historical standards, a very high uh, depreciation of the currency. Got it. Again, so, by, yeah. so, so the currency is going down, inflation is going up, uh, debt payments. Uh, debt payments, again, which a lot of them are foreign debt. Mm -hmm. So every time, so in terms of the math, uh, foreign debt comprises about one third of uh, uh, Pakistan total public debt. So then, if you have a one percent uh, increase in uh, the rupee, uh, in the dollar, then your service payments goes up by one third of that, mm. just because of the rupee yeah. in rupee terms. In dollar terms, it stays the same. Yes, but that means you have to, you know, like get more money out there. So that's another factor that weighs in on that. So first of all, let's look at the background of Pakistan. Exactly. Like I, I was get, going to get to it. That yeah. You talked about going into a deep dive. Yeah. So, so let's, let's do a deep dive. Why, why for instance, from for, yeah. for which is a question yeah, yeah. we have it, uh, you know, discussed yeah. informally, why has Pakistan yeah. stumbled from one crisis to another? Exactly. exactly. What is the history? So if I may, let me take five minutes. And you can take ten. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's just uh, okay. So, by way of background, although I've been in the U.S. Treasury for fourteen years, my favorite develop developing country is Pakistan, and in fact, my PhD dissertation, which was done in the late seventies, was the first macroeconometric model of the Pakistan economy that I pioneered and I built. Oh, wow, so, so we are going back to the future. We are going back to your PhD dissertation yes. now. So that was my first study of the Pakistan economy. When I was a young man and I was embarking on a journey to do a macroeconomic study of a developing economy. So I learned development economics on the way, and I got to learn all the statistics of Pakistan, because I had to build a disaggregated macroeconomic model, which mimicked the economy. It covered all sectors. It covered the, the, the uh, basically the value-added sectors, like agricultural, manufacturing, services, on the, the production side, it covered the expenditure side, consumption, investment, government spending, net exports, the balance of payments. It covered prices, the formation of prices, how they were formed in Pakistan. And uh, so the entire structure of the Pakistani economy was mimicked by my model, and the purpose was simulations. The purpose, it was based on empirical uh, data, and I estimated structural parameters, and it was like a, about close to a 70-equation model. It covered inflation, interest rates, uh, that tied up everything, and the balance of payments, and so on. So at that time, when I did my simulations and forecasts of the Pakistan economy, and my forecast started uh, around 1970 on, no, actually, because I finished my dissertation by 1979, 1980, so I was forecasting for the next 10 years. So in that context, when I was looking forward, I could see that Pakistan has always had 
budget deficits, mm. federal budget deficit, structurally. Mm. Basically, the revenues, the tax revenues, uh, income taxes, custom duties, indirect taxes, they did not cover the entire federal spending of the government, which consisted of current and development expenditures. So there was a chronic shortage. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the balance of payment had a deficit. Mm. Pakistan's exports were always less than imports. So how were the two deficits being covered? Luckily for Pakistan, until that time, uh, because Pakistan was with uh, the, was the frontier state in a Cold War, uh, it got very good, generous assistance from the, the international bodies like the IMF, the World Bank, and the USA. So given all that lending and uh, you know financing of the budget deficits and the trade deficits, Pakistan could cushion and did not experience high inflation rates. So de facto, Pakistan was subsidized by the US because of Cold War reasons. And the international bodies, and the inter at the bidding of the USA anyway. Like the International so, Monetary so. Fund, and to uh, probably a lesser degree, the World Bank. Exactly. And given that fact, given that Pakistan was subsidized, and it was like a frontier state, the rupee was always highly valued. It was overvalued, one would say. I see. And it was subsidized by the central bank. So the central bank was subsidizing the rupee so that industries that would have had a natural advantage of being set up could not be set up because things were getting, imports were cheaper than making them at home. Mm. Uh, and that in a way, and you know, Pakistan was subsidizing manufacturers, for example, at the expense of agricultural sector because they were trying to build up a manufacturing base. That is in the 60s, early 60s. It was in the early 60s to late 60s, and mm -hmm. even in the 70s. I see. And essentially what, and there's a thing, you probably heard of it, it's called the Leontier Paradox. Yes, of course. Uh, we uh, we uh, read it when professors like you teach us. Yeah. <laughs> and at that time, it was actually noted in the Indian context, not in the Pakistani context, yeah. but it applied to countries like Pakistan too, that if you were to think that one of the, the, the competitive advantage India and Pakistan would have would be exports of labor-intensive goods. Yes. And, you know, imports of capital-intensive goods, there was a vice versa going on. So in other words, uh, a lot of goods that India was exporting were intensive, and if they were exporting capital-intensive goods, the employment in the capital sector isn't that much anyway. Correct. So, so you had like a labor-abundant economy instead of taking a natural advantage of labor-intensive goods being exported. They were exporting uh, capital-intensive goods, so they weren't creating much employment in the domestic sector. And the reason was that because of overvalued currencies, Mm -hmm. that were importing all the machinery, plant, and equipment, and for that reason. So Pakistan uh, went that through is that the paradox. That is the paradox. That was the paradox. Yeah. That where you would expect a labor-abundant economy to be exporting labor-intensive goods, it was actually exporting capital-intensive goods, India. Mm -hmm. But same applied to Pakistan. So that was a structural case. So uh, just to sure. summarize for the listeners, Pakistan from the 60s, you know, 
uh, onward stride industrialization, but because its rupee was overvalued, they were not competitive vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say, the South Asian economies, the Asian tigers, who had uh, a currency that arguably was perhaps a bit undervalued. So their industry streaked ahead or raced ahead of Pakistan and consequently less left Pakistan. And of course, uh, you know, until recently, until the 1990s, when the Indian economy opened up, um, even India uh, deindustrializing paradoxically. Exactly. I, I agree with it. And another thing to add to the Asian Tigers, one of the qualities, they had a highly skilled labor force. Yes. Much educated and skilled. Yeah. If the, if the Asian Tigers had one advantage, although they didn't have much natural resources, they had fairly well-educated people and, of course, enlightened leadership. Yeah. Yes, In, uh, yes. Uh, and, and they also, just to add uh, one little uh, fact, which is important for our listeners to to notice that the Asian Tigers really focused on female literacy. The female literacy rates were really high. Ipso facto, their uh, women workers were extremely productive compared to, let's say, India or Pakistan. Exactly. And literacy rates were low in India and Pakistan. Clearly, that's the case. By way of perspective, um, you know, let's start the story for Pakistan from 1958 onwards, when Ayub Khan, a military general, took over the government. Although he set many wrong precedents, some of the precedents that he did set, first of all, like we just talked about industrialization, mm. rapid industrialization. That is the first time, I think, after Yukon came in, that economists got prominence in policy making. Mm. Thanks again to USAID that brought in the Harvard Advisory Group to really help Pakistan plan. The five-year planning for growth and prosperity began during that time in earnest. So there were targets established mm -hmm. that had to be achieved for five years for Pakistan's rapid industrialization and growth. So there were many fronts under the Yukon that the country did embark on progress and development. Uh, growth rates were uh, GDP growth rates, again, by way of perspective. Under a Yukon, they grew at 6% a year, starting from 1960 all the way to 1969. A Yukon was at least enlightened enough to think about female literacy. He started family planning. Because Which, one of, for our Western listeners, uh, means a focus on contraception and, and lowering the number of children women have. Exactly, exactly. So that, you know, you don't have a lot of illiterate young population without any, you know, uh, employment opportunities. So, so all those were uh, progressive reforms at the advice of the Harvard Advisory Group, paid for by the USAID, Agency for International Development, the World Bank. Economics as a field became prominent in Pakistan. Until that time, I didn't even know what economics was. And I was a teenager. And I never thought I'd end up being an economist and doing a podcast with you. Because <laughs> I didn't know what economics was. So we can thank General Ayub Khan for this. <laughs> well, you know, at, at least the economists uh, who were prominent, Pakistani, mm -hmm. who were at the World Bank at the time, mm -hmm. they were brought into Pakistan and they headed the Ministry of Finance and they moved forward. 
So the Pakistan was progressing fairly rapidly from 1960 to 69. Again, by way of perspective, South Korea had less exports than Pakistan at the time, and they would send teams to Pakistan to learn from the Pakistani planning experience. And in fact, when the Yukon gave up the country to another military dictator, Yahya Khan, the economists wrote, that Yahya Khan has inherited an economy that would turn any third world dictator green with envy. So yeah. The Economist, which is 1843 vintage, and uh, the publication of uh, the British establishment, uh, was singing pians to General Ayub Khan. That's high praise. Yeah, at least the economy that inherited by Yahya Khan. So Pakistan had progress. You can liken it to a child, uh, you know, um, a mm. tool that a child has to grow anyway. Mm. So when Pakistan emerged after the Brits left, it was like a kid, and it did grow. And you can at least nurture it, mm. give it some water and fertilizer along the way. So it did grow, definitely. There were a lot of bad precedents set. Sure. The emergence of the military in Pakistan's internal and external affairs. So that has been now a structural impediment, mm. and Pakistan has never got out of it. So we are jumping the gun. Yeah. So uh, we've got to the 60s. Yahya Khan inherits an economy that would be the envy of any third world dictator. And, you know, so far, until 69, things are going well, swimmingly well. In fact, Pakistan is ahead of South Korea. And of exactly. course, there is no comparison now between South Korea and Pakistan. So what goes wrong after 1969? Okay, now, okay, that's a very good question. The first thing that goes wrong is political. Pakistan gets into a civil war with its eastern, you know, uh, province, East Pakistan. Now Bangladesh. Now Bangladesh that emerged uh, after a very bloody civil war in 1971. Now, there's a historical reason why the two provinces split. It was primarily economics and discrimination. East Pakistan, which was more populous at the time, felt that it was discriminated against by West Pakistan, which is now Pakistan. So that's one big thing that happened. Politically, the other big thing happened is that Yahya Khan, to his credit, had the most fairest elections that have ever been recorded in Pakistan history. Mm. And it so emerged that a party which predominantly had a majority in East Pakistan and also had majority of seats in the National Assembly was denied the government by the military dictator. Wasn't uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto to blame as well for that? I'm coming to Bhutto, who is the primary villain. If there's any primary villain in the story of Pakistan, unlike a lot of people who do not understand the role of Bhutto, and we can do another podcast, a political role of Bhutto, and how we that will, has, we will. <laughs> and but, how that has, but essentially, what happened is. Majibur Rahman, who was a leader of a, a regional party out of Bang East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, he got the entire uh, nationally uh, assembly seats that belonged to East Pakistan. Although, and Bhutto, who was up, uh, had started his own party called the People's Party, Pakistan People's Party, PPP, they call it these days. So essentially what happened that Although he emerged victorious in West Pakistan, but he was a minority 
compared to the overall seats in the National Assembly. He refused to go to the National Assembly. And Jaja Khan, who was from the same province in Bhutto, and who wanted to be, stay on as president, the military dictator, uh, Bhutto, in a way, assured him that if he could get Bhutto to be the prime minister, who was a minority compared to Mujib Rahman, he would keep on Yahya Khan, unlike Mujib, who did not agree with that. And also, East Pakistan had a number of grievances that accumulated from the partition of uh, India ever since it came into existence. So that was number one mm -hmm. political event that broke up the country. Mm -hmm. The number two event, we were talking about Bhutto. So once that country broke up and East Pakistan went its own way, the West Pakistan was given over to Bhutto, who basically was a minority candidate. But now that he, there was only one province, he emerged as the majority candidate without having fresh elections. Military handed it over to him, and he went into socialism. He nationalized the entire industrial sector of Pakistan. So, in a way, uh, this is precisely the period when Indira Gandhi takes over India, and she's uh, now becoming some kind of goddess figure after the victory in the 1971 India-Pakistan War. And she also embraces socialism and basically decimates the Indian economy. So, in a way, these, these are Parallels. 1970s, it's, uh, it's parallel stories. Parallel, exactly, parallel stories. So Pakistan, you know, like in answer to your question, that was going along smoothly, mm. industry was, and in fact, I would give a parallel to the South Koreans. You, you, you've heard of the shibolats. Of course, yeah, shibols. Yeah. Shibols. Shibols. They yeah. basically are like houses of families. Industries, that industrial are, families. Industrial families yeah. that are monopolies, but they are progressive. Mm -hmm. They're developing the Hyundais and, you know, all those. The Samsung. Sim similarly, the there were like about the 20 to 21 families mm -hmm. that were dominant in banking and manufacturing and others. But when it was all nationalized, or those equivalent of shovels were disbanded. So they probably left for Dubai and England and elsewhere. Coupled with a lot of these industrialists were from an Islamic sect called Ahmadis. Aha. And uh, Bhutto added another uh, injury that insult he declared. Insult injury. He de in, in, insult. He declared the Ahmadi group. Non-Muslims. As non-Muslims. This so, is 1974, isn't it? Exactly. While yeah. he was still the prime minister. So first he socialized their stuff. Then he, considered, he calls them non-Muslims. So they're driven away from the country. So the entire entrepreneurial class and yeah. the industrial uh, sector is disbanded. And now you have a situation. Okay. And at the same time, the oil wealth was discovered by the Middle East ah. as oil prices went up. And, you know, OPEC was formed. So when all that oil money started flowing into Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, they needed to build up their economies and build up, you know, like uh, structures and so on. And sure enough, they got all this labor-abundant economies like India and Pakistan sending their labor over to the Middle East. So that brought in a lot of remittances mm. from the Middle East to the Pakistan economy, which again had an overvalued currency. Mm -hmm. So now you had the Middle East in a way contributing to keeping their uh, rupee overvalued. Deindustrialization de again. Now, if I may very quickly give parallels from another time, and I will give 
the example of France, uh, to our French listeners and our European listeners, they will remember St. Bartholomew's Day's uh, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. So what happened that day in 1572 is that Catherine de' Medici, the nice Italian uh, uh, de facto queen ruling France, ordered the slaughter of the Huguenots, the French Protestants. And the Huguenots fled en masse. They fled to Switzerland, taking watchmaking with them. That's why Tissot and all these uh, watches in Switzerland are all Huguenots. They, they took banking not just to Switzerland, but to England. I used to live in the Huguenot Quarter. Um, uh, I used to live um, on 40 Folgate Street next to the Spitalfields Market, and that was where the Huguenots came and uh, brought with them banking knowledge. And they were amongst the communities that led to London becoming a financial capital of the world. And, and of course, the Huguenots fled to Prussia that later led the reunification of Germany. And lest we forget uh, uh, the great um, uh, author of uh, uh, the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Uh, do you remember the author? Adam Smith? No, no, Adam Smith is uh, the Scotsman. Okay. Uh, they, 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 Who was they, this one? Uh, uh, Max Weber, I was, ref oh, I was referring oh, oh, to. Oh, Max Weber. Uh, and, and, yeah. and we are... We are we may not be at our sharpest um, uh, today. Uh, maybe we've eaten a, 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 you know, too rich a lunch, uh, <laughs> but we do know our Max Weber, and both of us have read it. So, uh, yes. so, so Max oh, yeah. Weber, uh, his uh, mother, I think, um, if I remember correctly, was Huguenot. So, so oh. basically, the talent from France, the entrepreneurial class from France, left. And uh, uh, the benefit of it accrued to Prussia, Switzerland, and England. So it seems Pakistan suffered from a similar malaise, fast forward a couple of, or three centuries. Exactly. I think, thank you for bringing up that example. Of course, the entrepreneurial class, the Amadis and others, were not that big as the Huguenots in France, and not that advanced, but at least they had set up an industry that was moving forward. And then because of the religious and other prosecution, they were forced to leave the country, and the industries were taken over by the government. So that was one big blow that the government got. So when Bhutto was deposed by another military dictator, Ziaul Haq, it so happened that the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Now, that's another milestone. That's 1979. 1979. Uh, Ziaul Haq took over in 1977. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you know, we can go into the reasons why he took it over, but essentially it was to save his neck because, uh, you know, Bhutto had some trouble, uh, domestic trouble from his uh, political opponents uh, who believed that the recent election that had been held in 1976 were rigged. And they were rigged by the help of the military and others. So Ziaul Haq basically took over, and there were a lot of protests uh, against. So the parallels with Imran Khan are striking. Uh, circa, you know, when the, the Nawaz Sharif government took over, he used to protest against rigging. Similarly, when Bhutto won the election, the six, uh, the opponent, opposition parties, they protested countrywide protests. And Jawl Haq supposedly came in to have fair elections in three months. But if those three months led to 11 years. Essentially what happened that during his first years uh, in office, the Russian, the you know, USSR invaded Afghanistan. 
And that, in a way, resulted in economic uh, or taps of money being opened by the U.S. to Ziaul Haq's regime. So that's another, you know, uh, interesting development that the U.S. under Reagan, when he came into office in 81, he opened up the taps uh, uh, of credit and uh, debt assistance to Pakistan, uh, like uh, close to like uh, $12 billion that has, by historical standards, huge. Mm-hmm. And that must have led uh, to an overvaluation of the rupee. Again, the that led to an overvaluation. Mm-hmm. So there was that uh, superficial prosperity bought with credit mm-hmm. and grants by the U.S. So then Pakistan supposedly flourished, but at the disadvantage of industrialization due to an overvaluation. Deindustrialization. So here is Pakistan yeah. bought in the low productivity, yeah. low wage, low job spiral right. and it is basically overvalued a su- rupee. Yeah, overvalued rupee and it is basically a subsidy economy uh, just uh, back to the the point uh, that you made is that all this time uh, through a quirk um, of history and, and and in fact perhaps because of the cold war pakistan gets a lot of easy money from the us exactly and of course money from Saudi Arabia after the oil boom, remittances. Right. So its rupee is artificially overvalued, exactly. which means it cannot develop its industry. And to add insult to injury, yeah, it has socialism imposed by that idiot. Uh, what's his name? Bhutto. Uh, Bila, uh, not, I would call him an evil genius. The so. evil genius, uh, the, 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 the first Bhutto. Uh, who was uh, Prime Minister, Zulfikar, Bhutto, Z- yeah. Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, uh, the grandfather of Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, yeah. uh, and uh, and uh, the Ahmadi class, yes. Ahmadis whom he declares non, non-Muslims, who are the entrepreneurial class of Pakistan, they basically flee to England and in other places, USA and, and other, USA, yeah. and of course uh, to, to Dubai and elsewhere, right. and they power growth elsewhere. So we've got to, let's say, the end of the eighties and and the so by, by the time and, exactly yeah and, and the Soviet uh, you know and the Soviet Union is beaten now in Afghanistan exactly and three years to... later you have the fall of the uh, Soviet Union itself exactly so so what is the story after that okay after that uh, Zhao Haq uh, mysteriously got killed in a plane crash. And that, when is this? When does this, this happen? This was in Which 1988. 1988. So just, just when... Just after the Russians had left. The, all right. Just about when the Russians are leaving, around that time. Oh, yeah, around yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They had been defeated. They yes. were leaving. And, you know, he died in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. And that was the time that Bhutto's daughter... Benazir. Uh, Benazir Bhutto. There were, were... Elections were called. Her party won the elections. And she was made prime minister of Pakistan. Now, being the daughter of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, she continued the socialist policies, although she was more refined than her dad in terms of opening up the economies, And but her rule was very short-lived. Mm. The military had become very powerful, uh, starting from a Yukon through Ziaul Haq, and they could not take orders from a woman or prime minister democratically elected. 
So she only lasted two years. And she, at that time, what Yaul Haq had done while he was president, he had amended the Constitution. It was called the 18th Amendment, which basically gave the power to the president to dissolve the parliament at any time mm. and the prime minister. So that was a power that he, and since he was the president, Zawlak, he exercised it. No, he was dead by then, right? It was no, someone but else. before he died, yeah. he had promulgated an 18th yeah. amendment, whereby right. he gave got himself. It, the, he did, before he died, he did have like a, a dummy parliament. He did have elections, non-party elections. Because of a lot of calls from the, the Americans and other Western democracies, he did hold elections, but non-party elections. So the fig leaf of democracy, yes. he preserved it, but as president, he had the power to dismiss anyone yeah. he didn't like. Exactly. And even after he died, the president continued to have that power. Exactly. And when Benazir... It was called the 18th Amendment. Got it. And when, when so Benazir when was prime minister... And the, she, she started giving orders to the military. They got the president to kick her out. Exactly. Okay. To the 18th Amendment. At that time, the guy who was president was Ghulam Isha Khan, mm. who had been a mentor of Ziaul Haq and who had been an instrument in bringing Ziaul Haq to power. He was a civilian bureaucrat. Uh -huh. So you can see another story that has been there, a theme, is the civilian bureaucracy and the military marriage. Uh -huh. So the Pakistan Administrative Service, which yes. is the counterpart of the Indian Administrative Service, yes. which is equally powerful or maybe a bit less, actually, I'm sure a bit less powerful than, than, the, the, than the Indian Administrative Service, right. uh, and in Pakistan's context, certainly less powerful than the military. Right. So between the two of them, they are ruling the country. They are basically called the establishment. Understood. So, uh, so Ghulam Isar Khan was basically the product of the civil service, and Jawal Haq was a product of the military. military. So they had a pretty good alliance. Mm -hmm. And Ghulam Isa Khan became the president. First, he was Speaker of the National Assembly. Then when Jawal Haq passed away, uh, he became president. And then he dissolved Benazir's government. He brought in another party, which was Nawaz Sharif's government, for about a couple of years. Then he got rid of the Nawaz Sharif government. Uh, and it so happened at that time... Benazir, a military guy, came into power. His name was Cocker, mm. Abdul Wahid Cocker. That's another name to be remembered in Pakistani history, which is going against the military hegemony. Mm. This guy was a professional soldier. And by the way, my wife's uncle, he was the chief of army staff when there was a rift between Ghulam Ishaq Khan and Nawaz Sharif. Because Ghulam Ishaq Khan basically was a mentor to Nawaz Sharif also. He had promoted Nawaz Sharif. He had made him prime minister, but then they had a falling out. So they brought in Wahid Kakar, who was the chief of army staff, to intervene. So what he did, he sent both home. <laughs> Instead, but he did even a weird thing that has never been done before. Well, in Pakistan, things have happened that have never been happened, unprecedented. Wahid Kakar said, okay, I'm going to bring in a neutral prime minister, uh, and then we'll have elections in three months. And guess who is the neutral prime minister? He's the vice president of the World Bank. 
So can you believe it? A Pakistani, Moinuddin Qureshi, yeah. a Pakistani who has spent most of his life in, in Washington, sitting in Washington <laughs> dispensing aid to third world countries, is brought in to become a prime minister and hold elections. Now, here's a question, you yes, know, uh, yeah. uh, Nasir. I mean, he, he was uh, uh, your wife, Zali's uncle. Why didn't he import you into the administration? At that, well, I was a new son-in-law. He was probably not aware I see. <laughs> of me, and I would not probably have come in. One of the things I've maintained all my life, uh, like uh, my staying in the USA has been a matter of choice. I could definitely have gone back up to... Of course. You're a done, clergy, after all. You're, yeah, you're royalty and, in Pakistan. And basically being part of the ruling clique. Yeah. But the thing is, it's a two-edged sword. Yeah. One day you're in power, the next day you're out. Yeah. I've been, over the years, offered... You know, like uh, some jobs in political, like as a deputy finance minister or a finance secretary, but I've always turned them down basically for two reasons. One, it's against my principles of, a, of serving for a military or dictator. And secondly, we don't know how stable they are. Uh -huh. And, you know, like living in the U.S., as you know, Atul, uh, even if you live honestly in Pakistan, even as a minister, you can't afford to educate your kids in the West. That's true. So That's I've been true. very fortunate that I have had good jobs in the USA. So I've never really had to go hat in hand to my in-laws. But I joke with my wife that every government in power always has had a representative of her family in there. <laughs> All right, so, so let's get so back to get let's get back, back to, to the Kaka, so, so your, your what relative, we, uh, so General what do Kaka. We have? So now we have this general, Reid yeah. Parker. He brings in a prime minister from the World Bank. They have elections again. And this time, Benazir comes back into power. Mm -hmm. So she comes back into power uh, with the help, and she appoints with her With the help own. of whom? With, with basically the help of the military. Uh -huh. Because they got, got rid of Nawaz Sharif and Ghulam Isaac Khan mm -hmm. and Wahid Kakar had elections done again mm -hmm. and the new Prime Minister Moinuddin Qureshi, who's a civil servant. Uh, by the way, the, the, the acting Prime Minister who came from the World Bank, he started his career in the administrative services. Oh, he was Pakistan administrative service. Yeah, oh, so dear. there's been this marriage also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called incest. A lot of uh, Pakistani <laughs> administrative <laughs> services ended up going to the World Bank. Yeah. I mean, look, there. look, look, uh, there is incest um, uh, when it comes to India too. Members of the Indian administrative service go to Harvard Kennedy School and uh, in the World Bank, and often they know very little of economics. In fact, I jokingly say they don't even know the E of economics, but still they are running the economy of the country. This is exactly Pakistan's case. When you have people like Moinuddin Qureshi and others who were part of the administrative services, pose as economists. Uh, they study uh, literature quite often yeah, or, or, they, or maybe exactly. something else. You know, exactly. sociology. They know they're Max Weber. Exactly. Uh, but they have this weird notion. Keynes once remarked, by the way, John Keynes John Maynard remarked, Keynes, yeah. John Maynard Keynes remarked that, you know, when you're talking to a medical doctor, the doctors and scientists have a jargon that escapes the norm person. So they don't know what language they're talking. Because they're talking about all these names of organs and diseases and what's going on with the patient. Unfortunately for economics, that's what John Maynard gains. Although we talk in terms of our own jargon, the lay person thinks that they understand what we're talking about. For example, when we talk about profits, it's not what the lay person thinks is profit. Similarly, when we talk about unemployment, 
the layperson doesn't understand what we mean by unemployment. So there's a lot of jargon. So for that reason, the layperson thinks they understand everything about economics. And especially people who have been versed in literature, who think that they are very smart people, intelligent and so on. So they understand what uh, monopolies are and what, uh, you know, econ uh, economic profits are and so on and so forth. And, and, and then they don't look at uh, the real economist and they, they take the advice very selectively. Understood. So, so, so what, what you're saying is that Pakistan's economy was run by a bunch of amateurs from the Pakistan Administrative Service. Exactly. And fast forward, you now have a Benazir back in power. Exactly. Uh, this time installed by the army. She's made her peace with the Pakistani yeah. military. Now what happens? She comes in in 97 on the second round. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, installed by the army. Now the army goes back supposedly to the barracks. Mm -hmm. The president is basically from Benazir's party. His name is Ligari, mm -hmm. Farooq Ligari, a very prominent uh, politician. A landholder. Mortar, a landlord, mm -hmm. son of a Nawab, like they call it. Mm -hmm. Nawab uh, is a minor prince for our listeners who are not Indian, Pakistani, or Bangladeshi. Who went to chief's college, who was a civil servant, by the way, himself. As well, also a member of the Pakistan Although Administrative he, Service. Although he resigned, mm -hmm. and no, he joined politics. He was in the People's Party. Mm -hmm. He went to jail for the People's Party in Ziaul Haq's jail. I see. So he was a loyalist so of the Bhutto family. So he was a loyalist, and that's a, I want to pronounce it, uh, and I want to re-emphasize that when he came as president, which Benazir made herself, I said that Benazir, for the first time, has everything, all her ducks in a row. She's got her own president. Hmm. She can make her own policies, and she's very well, fairly educated. She went to Harvard, and she knew, she, uh, you know, at least... She was much better than her opponent, who was Nawaz Sharif, that we can talk about later, who was always opposing her from a different party. But anyway, two years later, Farooq Ligari, using the 18th Amendment, fires his own prime minister. Ooh la la. Why? Because of the military insistence that mm. Benazir and her husband were meddling in the affairs of the military. Now, let's get so to Benazir. So he better get rid of her or they would get rid of her. So let's, uh, we've talked about how the military starts intervening in the economy. Yeah. We've talked about Bhutto destroying Pakistan's economy through socialism. Uh, well, let's talk about also the extraordinary corruption that also destroys the Pakistani economy. And of course, uh, we have been uh, uh, discussing this for a while, and uh, we have been talking, for instance, about Rockwood Estate, which Asif Ali Zardari bought, apparently 335 or 360 acres in Surrey. Uh, and, uh, and of course, he was once known as Mr. 10%, uh, which is 10% of every transaction went to him. And and when he later came to power, I, I, you know, a Pakistani friend, yes, yes, he still missed a 10%, but now he takes 90% and 10% comes to us. So this is also a time when corruption large scale explodes, isn't it? Okay, absolutely. Uh, corruption, uh, especially after, after Yahya Khan, when he left, Again, I'll have to put a background to this, and we're, I don't want to spend too much time on this, how commercial uh, corruption started in Pakistan. It started back, what Yahya Khan did early in his career when he took over the government, he fired 
over 300 senior civil servants hmm. in all services, irrigation, engineers, all incumbent services, he fired them for corruption. Hmm. So once he had fired them, uh, until that time in the 1978-79, if you were to take Pakistan from 47 to 1968, the word corruption was not a big deal in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. When we talked about corruption during those days, it was like an ordinary policeman stopping you, going through a red light, and pocketing five rupees. Mm. So that was a corruption confined to a lower class. Mm -hmm. The civil service, as you've been in the administrative services, so you know the history, the civil service, which was brought in by the Brits, was supposed to be very... Are basically public servants. Mm -hmm. So public servants means public servant. Yeah. That you're a volunteer. The purpose is not to make money, but essentially to serve the public. Yeah, you had status, but you weren't taking uh, you know big sums of you know exactly. money as bribes. Although you made decisions. Yeah. That involved. I'll give you a very good example. My father, he was an engineer in the civil service. So when India split up into Pakistan and India, there was a lot of property of the Hindus who migrated to India, and it was lying there. So the decision was made by Pakistan that the migrants who were coming from India, the refugees, the Muslim refugees. Mahajirs. Mahajirs, they are called, immigrants or Mahajirs. They would be allotted the Hindu property according to what they had left behind. My dad was a basically like a middle-class, middle, middle uh, civil servant, engineer by profession. Because we have, Pakistan lacked civil servants, he was appointed as the administrator whose job was to split up this property among all these refugees or immigrants or mahajirs. And he did that without taking anything up for himself. Without a single paisa. Without, without a single, a single rupee. And there were billions of dollars worth of land and property yeah. that were given to the refugees. So that's where the civil service started, with that ethos. Yeah. No, I have relatives who didn't take a, a single rupee as a bribe ever. Exactly. And retired very honorably. Exactly. And of course, now, if you if you look at a yeah. lot of people who are my batchmates, yeah. a lot of them have stolen money hand over fist. So when I was growing up, when I was 18, 19 years old, my dad was basically in the irrigation department dealing with landlords, mm -hmm. allotting water to the rights to the, which meant a lot of money for the landlords. He lived a very simple life. He, he really believed in public service. Understood. So, so when this Yaya changes. Khan, so when it changes around that turning point. When Yahya Khan fires, starts firing civil servants, they now lack security. They don't know how long they're going to last. And, you know, and they don't even get pensions when they were fired. Mm. So that's where the, the thing turned. I see. And the civil servants started thinking seriously about their future mm. and whether they would ever go till retirement. Mm -hmm. So then this thing started mm -hmm. slowly. So when Jaul Haq came in, I see. he did the same. He fired 1,500 civil servants. Wow. So with, with that insecurity that got built into the civil service, they started thinking about their futures. And so that's when the real corruption started. 
And then, you know, at the same time, when there are people like you brought up Zardari, when Benazir Bhutto came in and became prime minister, there'd be a lot of people no, who... Zardari pro- didn't become prime minister, did he? Benazir, Benazir became prime became, minister. She, Zardari was, was her husband. Uh, he was her <laughs> husband. So there would be rich businesses and yeah. others who would lobby him and say that if he could get the wife to sanction a contract in their favor, they'll give him some money. Mm-hmm. That's where the name got started. Mr. 5% or Mr. 10%. Yeah. So during Jawal Haq's time, corruption became, in a way, semi-legal. Jawal Haq at one time pronounced that corruption, the, the person who gives corruption needs something, and the person who takes corruption needs something. So in a way, he was condoning that. Understood. Even in the development literature, if you look at the literature, early thinkers about corruption used to think corruption lubricates the wheel of development. It's basically yet another addition to the transaction costs in the economy. It is, but it also lubricates it. Understood. Like, you know, if you can't get something project done and you've got this stupid civil servant Mm -hmm. who doesn't know what he's stopping, a little money in his pocket can move that project or industry forward mm-hmm. if you are giving licenses and stuff. Yeah. So, so at one time, the developing economists uh, condoned. They thought it was a cost of business. I see. So it was basically grease for the squeaky wheel. It was grease for the squeaky wheel. Mm-hmm. Now, that grease for the squeaky wheel, along the way, with immense sums of money that came in from U.S. assistance mm. for weapons, armaments, fight against the Afghan war. Charlie Wilson's war. Charlie <laughs> Wilson's war. Then the military also started greasing their wheels, you know, because when they had to buy tanks, mm. foreign companies were giving them money for it. So the administrative services, when they were allotting, sanctioning land, exactly. they were greasing themselves. And with an overvalued rupee, they could go to England and buy these properties. Mm-hmm. So let's stop yeah. for a second and just quickly point out to our listeners what uh, is the result of this. You are gradually ha- seeing an elite capture of the state. And this elite is not paying taxes. And even more importantly, it is starting to put its wealth in safe havens. Uh, of course, London is one, England, you know, as we pointed out. And for, USA. And USA. And later, Dubai as well. Dubai has been a great crown. Yeah. For in, in fact, the joke is, and we've, we've joked about it uh, often at the dinner table, is the moment money from the International Monetary Fund comes in, uh, Property prices in Dubai rise instantly. So that exactly. means you know money is coming into Pakistan through the front door and leaving by the back door. Back door. And, and that brings us on to the more structural problems of the of the Pakistani economy. That why is it that Pakistan is rushing to the IMF? Let's say seventeen. But this is the twenty-second time. Twenty-second time already from nineteen fifty-eight onwards. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good point. Now that we got the elite established, yeah. Now by elite, I will mean the military, uh, the civilian service, Pakistan administrative and, service, the and, PAS, uh, and the business class and, and the landed class. community. Yeah. So this elite or establishment, mm. essentially, what Pakistan has emerged as is. They have chronic budget deficits. Mm. They cannot collect enough tax revenues Mm -hmm. to finance their spending. Mm -hmm. A major part of it goes to the military and other perks that are given to the elite. 
subsidies that are provided to the elite. Yeah. And those state-owned enterprises that are legacy of the Bhutto years. They are legacy of the socialist, socialist experiment. Although Pakistan has got rid of a lot of them, but there are some state-owned enterprises that refuse to be let go on, like the PIA, Pakistan International Airlines, uh, the steel mill. Mm -hmm. These are uh, money-losing propositions. So taxpayer year. money goes into these extremely inefficient them. enterprises. Yeah. Pakistan spends a lot of money subsidizing the elites because elites are the ones who drive cars. So motorways are being built for their cars to be on, but they don't pay enough taxes. So tax avoidance and evasion is a culture. Just, just to give you an idea, if I was sitting in Pakistan and I said to my friend, both to my friend, I evaded taxes, he'll basically pat me on my back. Mm -hmm. Do I dare say that to an American friend here, sitting in America? I think Both. you'd be in jail, Nasir. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a culture in the elite that not paying taxes is an achievement. It's a badge of honor. It's a badge of honor. This is a structural thing. Mm -hmm. They will not vote for anyone. So economists, by the way, I should talk about the role of the economists. Pakistan has had some fine economists. It doesn't suffer a dirt of economists. They've already told what the problem is, like I'm going to tell you. Mm. No one has been able to say how to solve the problem. Mm. And I won't be able to. I can tell you, uh, you can what the remedies the problem, are. But you I can't can implement them. Uh, we can't implement them because no government politically can stand the heat of the elite, which includes the military, the administrative services, the landlords, they get elected. And, 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 the, in, and, and the tiny uh, business elite. And the tiny business elite. Which lives off the patronage of the state. Yeah. So everyone knows that Pakistan has a huge potential for income tax revenues. So does the IMF. The IMF knows that Pakistan can raise the money, number one. But everyone knows where the spending is going. It's going into non-making, money-making outfits, subsidizing the wrong people, uh, essentially spending it on the military overtly and covertly. People don't, they, when the government sh shows the budget to everyone, they say, well, out of our budget, hardly 20% of the government budget goes to the military. In fact, it's 50%. Because wow, all as the high as that. Yeah, because they hide all the pensions and health and the welfare under the civilian expenditure. Ah, they disguise it. So they basically say money spent on the standing army is this much. Money spent on uh, uh, armaments is this much. So if you go to CIPRI, which is the Stockholm International um, Peace Research Institute, mm -hmm. they try to compile honest figures. Yes, CIPRI is excellent. Yeah, in, in fact, many years ago, one of the studies that I tried to do, which I did, was uh, the title is Military Expenditures and Economic Growth in Pakistan. So I was looking for a causal link where the military expenditures had caused economic growth or retarded economic growth. The problem was that, and I went to CIPRI for independent figures, and they were just claiming that 6% of Pakistan GDP goes to military spending. So when I used those numbers, I didn't find either a positive 
or a negative relationship. It was a very inconclusive uh, relationship between military spending and economic growth in Pakistan over 1960 all the way to over 2000. So with that background, we have a very fundamental problem that economists have pointed out, lack of enough tax revenues. Pakistan has the lowest income tax rate, 10%. The IMF knows it. The IMF keeps telling Pakistan that they can raise it. But then the policymakers do not have the guts. And the spending side, everyone knows the spending is going to the military. We're talking about spending and revenues. Got it. So there's but a these big, are flows. Yeah, big, now, big, let's big. talk about assets. Brilliant. No one talks about the asset yeah. distribution. What the Pakistani government does at the same time, which is like an opportunity cost, a source of revenue, is that every time a general retires, he's given a piece of land mm. whose value is in uh, 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 millions. millions of rupees. Yeah. Dollars. Millions of dollars, actually. So that's what the guy does. Mm. He sells it and he moves to the West. Aha. Uh -huh. So, so you have this other source that no one really talks about mm. is the perks and the and the assets mm -hmm. that are given to them for free. Mm. Land, uh, cars, duty-free, like Mercedes, that they're free to dispose. Then there are colonies established. Uh, land is bought at uh, like you know, emergency rates, at uh, low rates from poor landlords, and then given at subsidized rates to the military. So on the spending side, it's not only just the flows, but it's also the stocks that are given to to the the elite. Mm -hmm. And on the revenue side, uh, not enough uh, income tax revenues are being collected. So what is the result? The government has to survive. So they've introduced all kinds of nuisance taxes, which a lower middle class have to suffer. So the lower middle class basically shoulders the burden of the state. Exactly. And, and that money collected from the lower middle class exactly. ends up a, subsidizing the elite and maybe some freebies for the poor. Exactly. Exactly. And so unfortunately what has happened that uh, Pakistan chronically has had budget deficits for the reasons I mentioned, and they've chronically had balance of payment deficits because they continue importing stuff, but they can't sell anything. Atul, when I go back to Pakistan, I do not bring a single item that I purchase in Pakistan because either the quality is bad or they are overvalued. Mm. So Pakistan really has nothing to sell to the world. What do they have to sell? Labor. Mm -hmm. And the major export earners are remittances. So now can you imagine an economy of 240 million people does not have anything of high value added to export? So what is the GDP of Pakistan and what is the per capita income? We have 240 million people uh, living uh, you know, in that country. Exactly. So we're talking about GDP. Think of Pakistan land-wise as an area of Texas. Mm -hmm. It has a GDP in 2022 of $376 billion. Uh, population is 242 million. Per capita income at market exchange rates is about $1,658. By way of comparison to the USA, the GDP nowadays is over $22 trillion. So you can imagine, with a population of 340 million people, per capita income in the USA is close to 90 to 100,000. So 100 times the size of the Pakistani per capita. So 50 times. 
2,000. 2,000 yeah, 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 versus yeah, 100. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Over so, 50 yeah, times. Yeah. Exactly. Over so, 50 times. So, and, but at purchasing power, it will be a less drastic understood. thing. Because, you know, in terms of purchasing power, instead of 376 billion, we will be talking about 500 billion. Excellent. And similarly, we'd be talking about like close to 3,000 per capita. Uh, so that's basically it's the It's a very structure. poor country. It's so you have country. a lot of people living in yeah. poverty. Exactly. And... and, and and of course, many of those people now have been protesting the latest. Exactly. And in terms in of the distribution, in the wealth, given it's mm. a poor country, and now you've got the elite middle class, the top 1% of income earners control 9% of the income. Mm. 1% of the landlords control 22% of the arable land. Oof. And the bottom 20% hold 50% income, and the pure, I mean, 20% uh, of the top class hold 50% of the income. Wow. And the poorest 20% only get 11% of the income. So it's a very highly unequal distribution of income, wealth, and access to education and all the other amenities. At one time, I used to favoritely cite that close to, I think only 40% have safe uh, access to safe water. 40% have access to healthcare. Mm. So it's a very poor economy and the reasons we have mentioned. But in terms of wealth, if one were to keep in mind, this is the size of Texas, much more, and the biggest sector is agriculture. Pakistan is a fairly fertile land. Let's look at some advantages that Pakistan has. The British left a great legacy. It's got a full network of roads. It's got an extensive network of canals. It's got five rivers that go from north to south, and the water is distributed throughout Pakistan through a system of well-thought-out canals that went throughout that entire system. Hmm. So land is fertile. Agriculture is a fairly dominant sector. It is self-sufficient in food, Pakistan. They've never had any famine or anything like that. So in terms of agriculture, they're okay. But in terms of economic progress, development progress, Pakistan ranks very low on the Human Development well, Index. Yeah, and, and, and we've discussed this many a time. Pakistan, despite all its problems, has basically crawled along because of remittances coming from abroad, because of informal welfare networks, your family supports you, your second cousin supports you, something happens, you move in with your extended yes. uh, family. Uh, and you have a black or shadow economy, yes. which basically uh, is not even captured by official statistics. So things just basically move along. Move along. Yeah. And another thing we should mention that Ziaul Haq brought into Pakistan is this whole thing about the, the terrorism, the Islamic terrorism mm. that has brought, has inculcated the, the country. Mm. So this, this, is, is, this is, of political. course, partly Saudi-funded, because Saudis Again. funded the Madarsas. Exactly. Uh, and Pakistan and even India, it has gone from the land of Khuda yeah. Hafiz, a, a Farsi yeah. term, yes. which we used uh, in the subcontinent for 600, actually 800 years, from yes. 1192 onwards, yeah. uh, to Allah Hafiz. Exactly. So this whole scourge of uh, terrorism uh, essentially uh, has been brought into the Middle East money, the madrasa system, uh, this whole uh, concept of uh, mis misconstrued 
concept of Islam, a very weird form of Islam, a very a Wahhabi, the Wahhabi, Wahhabi doctrinaire Wahhabi Islam. doctrinaire concept of Islam. That is a score that Pakistan did not have when Ayub Khan left. Mm -hmm. So it started during Jawl Hakiyas when the you know the Russians came into Afghanistan. So so if I may interject, it's very incongruous that on the one hand it has it is such an Islamic country, but on the other hand, if you look at the elite, yes. and and we were Googling around before this podcast, and we found um reports of orgies being conducted in Bhutto's Rockwood estate or 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 you know UK British properties. So on the one hand you have this extreme Wahhabi Islam, which everyone sort of adheres to and uses Allah Hafiz, a very yeah. incongruous term instead of Khuda Hafiz. But on the other hand, the elite is licentious, secular, secular in private, and frankly, very excessive in its use of alcohol, drugs, I mean, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They're so like very... juvenile delinquents, exactly. <laughs> because that's what they do. Even in Pakistan, it's yeah. a very hypocritical society. Yeah. Like, you know, the elite goes around acting very Islamic, and in their, in their houses are in public, yeah. and their houses are full of liquor and stuff that they, 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 they espouse that they don't do anything like that. Yeah. So it's a very hypocritical society. Uh, lying is okayed, uh, lack of uh, morality. So it is, uh, you know, it's so hypocritical that we have a society, a culture, where corruption and lying and deceit is part of your ethos, but then uh, you act just the converse of that. And uh, those are some of the reasons. There's no excuse mechana that's going to bring about a change in Pakistan. It has to come from within. And looking outward and looking at the future, I do not see... I, I'm not very optimistic about the future of Pakistan. The only way forward, if they were to happen, and which is not happening, and I think the IMF has what the IMF stance is presently, maybe the right step forward, they are refusing to release a tranche of only a billion dollars to Pakistan. Keep in mind, we're talking about a 350 billion economy, only $1 billion basically because they have finally had it. Can you believe going to the IMF 22 times? It's like a drug addiction problem. It's like a drug addiction. So the only hope Pakistan has, which will bring a revolution, is if they stop getting funding from the IMF and the international and the USA. But then the USA has its own interests, which are very pragmatic. They do not really care what happens internally as long as Pakistan is on their side. So they've been doling out all this money. Same as the case with Saudi Arabia. And now, Egypt. It's, it's geopolitical rent, in a way. It's like Egypt. Pakistan is exactly like Egypt, you know, in many ways. There's one major difference. Egypt has a better social welfare system. <laughs> because Nasser did a, num a number on that one. Which Pakistan We're talking about, not you, but Gamal Abdel Jamal Abdel Nasser. Jamal Abdel Nasser. Yeah, actually, one of the things that distinguishes the Middle East uh, from uh, Pakistan is that the social welfare system in Egypt, because of Nasser and the socialist policies that they had, their social welfare is much ahead of Pakistan. Mm. Other than that, they're the same. They're a rentier state. 
There not much progress is being made. Egypt explicitly has the military ruling it. Pakistan implicitly has the military ruling it. Both are getting benefits out of it. They are not interested in progress. They want the status quo. The elite is not willing to give up, uh, you know, increased taxes on themselves. They want all the perks and privileges. So it is, I was just in Pakistan about six months ago, and a very senior bureaucrat from the elite administrative cadre. Yeah, I was attending a, administrative Who's service. actually a brother-in-law to my, my wife again, sadly to say. A senior bureaucrat who had just retired. When I started talking about the role of the bureaucracy, he became abusive. He could not even sit there and have a decent civil discourse about the role of the civil service in Pakistan. He was basically using abusive words that I said, I am surprised that you're doing it. So they're very protective of their now, interests. Of their interests. Yeah. And let's, now, let's talk about Imran Khan, now what he has done. Imran Khan belongs to, again, the elite class. He's from the middle class. He's done a number of things that have not been done before. First, he, in his own right, he has been a captain of a cricket team, which is a very big deal compared to all the other politicians that are around Pakistan. Yeah. So, I mean, they're all members of the Lucky Sperm Club. In fact, exactly. uh, Bilawal Bhutto Zardari can't exactly. even speak Urdu. Yeah, he speaks Nawaz Urdu Sharif with, with other... an English accent. Exactly. And Nawaz Sharif's daughter, Mariam Nawaz Sharif, exactly. uh, I mean, uh, she's also haughty and thick-headed. Exactly. If you were to take all the politicians on the ruling alliance, PDM they call it, and put them side to side to Imran Khan, there's a world apart. Imran Khan is a guy who went to Oxford. Mm -hmm. he, he, I mean, I, he yeah. wasn't the sharpest knife uh, in the drawer at Oxford. He's not that clever, but compared to Bilawal Bhutto, he's a genius. There you go. He was there. He led a cricket team to the World Cup. At least he was a leader of something. Mm -hmm. he, he married a very rich woman of the British aristocracy, and he was uh, patriotic enough to leave her to stay in Pakistan. He, he doesn't have any state in England, unlike Zardaris and Nawaz Sharif and all the ruling coalition. Mm -hmm. So what he has done... I mean, he was a playboy, but at least he was open and honest about that. Yeah, <laughs> and he's got his own money. So uh, he, he's not corrupt that way. Yeah. No one has been able to prove any corruption against him. They keep uh, filing charges. One of the other interesting things about Pakistan is, it's probably the same atul in USA, is you, better, you know, there's so many laws that are on the books that you're probably breaking one every day. So you better be careful that if you're critical of the government, that you're really squeaky clean because they'll find something on you. It may be a speeding ticket, or it may be, you know, that your grass is growing too long, or something happens, you're breaking zoning laws. Similarly, in Pakistan, they have a hundred more, and then they have corruption. It's a colonial state. All colonial states colonial tend state. to have draconian yeah. laws, and you suffer from rule yeah. by law rather than rule of law. Yeah. And so law can be used in, as an instrument of oppression, exactly. yeah. and certainly of, uh, let's say, um, uh, pinpricks, if nothing else. So, I, I do, I'm not a supporter of Imran Khan. I've just pointed out the differences. But I will. the last thing I'll say about Imran Khan, he's captured the imagination of uh, basically the kids of this middle class, educated kids. They call them yutias. Mm. And they basically, through social networks and so on, 
they basically have become very disappointed in these old politicians and the elite class. So that is a new thing that Imran Khan has brought to the fore. So I'm, if there's any hope in the future of Pakistan, is this open information. Mm. Uh, like you've got this educated uh, middle, lower middle and middle class that may stand up and make a difference uh, going forward. But right now, the outlook, unless something grows from within, I don't know how long Imran Khan can stand the heat, uh, you know, continue this war. He's already above 70. So, the, so that's my outlook for the Pakistan, politically and economically. I see. So economically, things are in a mess. Economically, things are in a free fall. And the only hope are, are the youth who uh, argue for greater transparency and basically the taming of the elite. Yes. Now, what happens if that does not transpire? What are we looking at? Uh, essentially, that's a very interesting question how that's going to transpire, let's say, over the next... I'm very pessimistic about the prospects of Imran Khan. Unless the military... The military is the real power. Unless the military... But the military right now... unless the, And the military are not that keen on Nawaz Sharif either. But right now, they find them to be better, lesser of the two evils. Uh, they think that the Nawaz Sharif coalition, the PDM that they call it, yeah, I mean, is, which is just uh, for our listeners, they should know that uh, Pakistan has two rival political families: the Sharifs and the Bhutto Zardaris. Exactly. And right now, the army has booted out, or the military has booted out, uh, which you know is mainly the army uh, has booted out Imran Khan and brought in a coalition of both the Bhutto Zardaris exactly. and the Sharifs. Sharif, yes. And Bhutto, Bilawal Bhutto Zardaris, the foreign minister of, uh, of Pakistan, and Shehbaz Sharif, the bro younger brother of Nawaz Sharif, is the prime minister of Pakistan. Exactly. And so they are in a convenience of, coal, uh, sorry, in a coalition of convenience to basically enjoy the fruits of power. And they are keeping their side of the bargain, their, their Faustian pact with the military, that they don't at all touch the military's powers. By way of back, exactly. That's a very good background perspective. By way of background, uh, the PTI did win the elections in 2018. The PTI, in, just uh, if you could tell the, our listeners Pakistan, the full Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, which is a party started by Imran Khan. The Justice Party, basically. Justice Party. And uh, basically, they become uh, pretty uh, popular and dominant. So they came in on a five-year term. Uh, the National Assembly is a parliament. Uh, about a year ago, the National Assembly, uh, Imran Khan lost confidence in the National Assembly because he had a very narrow coalition. And the military backed the, the alliance of the Zardari and Nawazari parties. So they, they were brought in to complete the tenure of the National Assembly. The tenure is going to be completed in October. So according to the Constitution, elections have to be held by October. Polls suggest that if elections are, and the reason I'm saying if, I'll explain later, but if elections are held in October, polls suggest that Imran Khan's party will win with the majority. Now, the military and the ruling alliance of the Zardari, the PPP, and the uh, Nawaz Sharif clan. The Lucky Sperm Club the, coalition. The, exactly. 
they do not want this to happen. So they're going, they're trying to prolong the election date as much as possible or get rid of Imran Khan so that they can have an easy one, easy go at the election. So that's the status quo right now. The military is with them. In May on May 9th, recently, Imran Khan was arrested again on a pending charge, uh, essentially on the premises of the uh, of the High Court, which is again very illegal, because the military did it. So there was a lot of disturbances that happened as a result of that. There was a lot of violence and arson by uh, Imran Khan supporters, and now what is happening? He also suffered an assassination attempt. The general feeling is, again, there was a conspiracy by the ruling party coalition to get rid of him. They would like nothing much better than to get rid of Imran Khan. So another possibility is, if they make life difficult enough for Imran Khan, he may agree to go, him, uh, go in exile for a couple of years so that the elections can be held and the ruling coalition can continue with the military as the benefactor. So that's one outlook. And if that happens, what happens? Then we're going to limp along. A lot depends on how Saudi Arabia, the problem is that South, the main benefactors of Pakistan in terms of priority are basically China, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the USA. Mm -hmm. Now, these three benefactors, they like to have a stable uh, and certain alliance with Pakistan. And let's explain very quickly why the Chinese support Pakistan as a counter to India. The, Saudi, exactly. the Saudis support Pakistan because they have an informal deal that they will have access to Pakistan's nuclear weapons exactly. in case they need them against Iran. Yes. And the U.S. just does not want a nuclear-armed state full of jihadis to go berserk. Exactly. And the Pakistan military is much in line with the U.S. military. They've been trained in the USA. So they, they have a good relationship with the military. The senior the, people. The senior people have a good relationship. Yeah. And the, the nuclear weapon is a big point, yeah. that they don't want that to be falling in the hands of the jihadis. So with these three, as long as these benefactors continue, and probably the IMF deal will come through, Mm -hmm. which will keep Pakistan continuing the way it has been going forward. But uh, Nasser, just one quick last thought before we sign off, because it's been a long podcast. We'll come back uh, to our listeners for more, uh, is that things last until they don't. And exactly. right now, Pakistan is a much more urban society. Urbanization yes. has raised expectations. Yes. Yes. There is now social media. People are watching YouTube, people are seeing TikTok, people are yes. on Twitter and whatnot, and they are a lot more discontented. And there is a potential that everything could blow up as in 1979 in Iran. That is a possibility, isn't it? Uh, but keep in mind, uh, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, but if we go back to the Iranian revolution and the, the way it blew up was essentially very similar that the elite class, uh, it was uh, the, the the majority which was mostly religious and had been exploited by the elite, which was very right. narrow, uh, and especially the USA. Mm -hmm. The role of the USA had been very pronounced in suppressing the Iranians. 
Yes. After 1954. 53. Musaddiq. Yeah, Musaddiq. So essentially, this was a culmination. Just, you know, we are giving a lot of references. So very quickly, Musaddiq was a democratically elected prime minister of Iran. He uh, nationalized uh, oil industry, and he did it after not being paid his due by Anglo-Iranian oil company, modern-day BP. Uh, they were paying $16, 16 cents to a dollar. He wanted a 50-50 deal. And so in come MI6 and CIA, and they boot him out, and they bring in the Shah. And the Shah basically runs a racket, basically billion-dollar coronation parties and whatnot, and the people are suffering. And so supported by the U.S. military. Exactly. And the Cold War. Exactly. He was a lie. So if the question is, are we going to have, have something like that happen in Pakistan? Actually, you know, there's a big difference here between Pakistan now uh, all the factors you mentioned, the social media, uh, more information, the educated youth, they're getting... Uh, one of the safety walls is that a lot of youth that, get, that gets disenchanted, they leave the country. Uh -huh. So as long as immigration is open, you know, they, uh, they, they get discouraged and they leave. Mm -hmm. That escape valve has kept the revolution from Pakistan, number one. Uh, so that may not ever happen because they leave the country. Mm -hmm. The and most, they, the most uh, yeah. brilliant of minds and the most energetic of Pakistanis leave. They leave instead of hanging around yeah. and taking the jails and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And so and you say, you mean to say, if you'd not been in the country, you you, you might have blown it all up. <laughs> exactly. If, if they were to stay there, and so immigration is a, a big safety vault, number one. Yeah. Okay. Number two, as I was remarking, unlike other revolutions, uh, you know, uh, the civil wars happen because both sides are supported by an external forces. Mm. So right now, there is a likelihood of civil war between the disenchanted youth and the civilians who are pro-Imran Khan and the others, but they have no weapons. Mm. The only organized uh, unit in Pakistan that has weapons is the Pakistan military. Mm. Who will supply? Let me ask you this, Atul. Do you think India may start supplying weapons to the youth? No, not at so, all. So, <laughs> no. There's no taker out there. The yeah. Afghan Taliban are not going to provide that. They're doing their own damage anyway. Yeah. So so that, that scenario is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, it could only happen, but you, you, you may be surprised. Uh, it may come to pass that if they keep going after it, and if Imran Khan continues that, they drive him into exile, They may he may start collecting weapons and arming his followers, but that is not part of Pakistan's history. Understood. Yeah. So more likely Pakistan will limp along, more, more likely poverty With the help will, of its friends, yeah, unfortunately. More, exactly. More likely poverty will persist. Yes. And uh, more likely Pakistan will be an unsettled place in the years, maybe decades to come. Exactly. All right. Uh, thank you very much for listening to us uh, from FO Podcasts. It is bye for now.